You're listening to The Zeitgeist, a podcast focused on Germany, the United States, and the transatlantic relationship. Join us as we discuss economics, politics, security, and more. I'm Jeff Rafke, president of the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies at Johns Hopkins University. We are really uh, fortunate to have with us today as a guest on The Zeitgeist, uh, Peter Beyer, who is a member of the Bundestag and is also the transatlantic coordinator in the German Foreign Office. There are few people in German politics who know the United States as well as Peter Beyer, uh, from his studies in the United States uh, to his work as, uh, as a lawyer, uh, including with US law firms and on international issues, as an elected representative for over a decade in the German Bundestag, uh, and now in a position as a government official. Uh, he is in this position one of the stewards of the German-American relationship and brings a unique perspective as a legislator and as an official. Uh, Peter, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me today. I really appreciate that. Um, it's a good way to keep in touch across the big pond. That's right, that's right. Now, uh, Peter is also a member of the CDU, uh, and in particular, he comes from North Rhine-Westphalia. Uh, for those who follow German politics, you might recognize that the three contenders for the CDU's leadership also come Uh, from Peter's home state. I don't know if we'll get to that uh, topic today in discussion, but maybe we'll come around to that uh, toward, toward the end. But first, I wanted to start off by uh, just observing the Bundestag has entered its, its summer break. Um, but if I understand correctly, uh, you are speaking to us from Berlin. Yeah, actually, um, you're correct. Uh, we, we started the, the two-month summer recess of the parliament, which happens every year. Um, and we're already at the beginning of that, but I'm here for around two days every week because there's so much things to do here in Berlin. So and I'm sitting right now in my uh, um, uh, office in the Bundestag. Okay. Now, but you're spending a lot of time also in your home constituency, I gather. Yeah, a lot. Usually it's the time of the year and I will do this also uh, for our summer tour through the constituency. You know, we have more time. You don't have to be sold so often in Berlin. So we use the time more intensely than before uh, to get in contact with our uh, constituents back home. And actually, that is where the center of my life is. I, I don't really live in Berlin, only when the uh, parliament is in session. There are exceptions, like today, but usually center of my work is where I live. Home is in and so, um, you know, when you are in contact with your constituents, um, how... How does your, your role as the transatlantic coordinator, coordinator register with your, with your um, voters? You know, is it something they ask about? Uh, do people bring up the relationship with the United States because you're one of the uh, you know, most visible figures in that, uh, in that aspect of the business? So what are the questions, concerns, uh, comments that your constituents have when they think about the United States? That is interesting uh, because that changed over time although I'm a little bit over two years of the transatlantic coordinator for the federal government before I've been responsible for almost a decade as a rapporteur in the foreign relations committee of the Bundestag for the same issues. So in the very beginning, I was very, you know, a little bit reluctant to talk too much about foreign relations and transatlantic issues because people usually think, you know, that is not something we, uh, why we've sent you uh, to Berlin and elected you. Mm -hmm. uh, do something for our district. Um, so, but that has changed, uh, uh, luckily. Um, so um, the more 
friction, the more tension is somewhere in the world. And also I have to admit, um, uh, I'm afraid to have to say that across the Atlantic and the transatlantic relations, people ask more questions. For example, uh, you know, troop reduction, um, nuclear sharing is something that people, people are interested in. And interesting is that the young generation, if I, if I have discussions in high schools, for example, the young people, they ask very critical questions um, about uh, the, the, the air base in Ramstein, for example, uh, because they have access to tons of information on YouTube, and so they see a lot of things on the internet, um, but, you know, heavily influenced um, to one side uh, against America, and I try to explain why that is so important that the American friends are here, um, and, you know, you start a discussion, and that is very good to have a discussion, and these questions are really there, apart from, of course, you know, uh, questions that go in the direction of economic relations, uh, more on the side of the company owners and businesses in my history. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. And so when you get these kind of questions, and I think you've, you've said, you know, that the, how important it is uh, from your perspective, and I agree, that the United States and Germany remain in a, not only in a security and defense partnership, but also in a broader political partnership. Uh, but, you know, when you are confronted with these kinds of questions, are there, are there bright spots you want to point to, you want to point out to, to the public? Uh, what, you know, are there, are there those, uh, you know, silver linings in the clouds that we often observe in the, in the German-American relationship? Yeah, you know, um, it's a very broad scope of transatlantic uh, topics that we have on the agenda on a daily basis, ranging from JCPOA, Iran, Near Middle East, mm -hmm. uh, Libya, uh, uh, economic relations, uh, NATO, Nord Stream 2, WTO, WHO, you name it. Um, not everything is of the same you know, interest to, to the people. Um, but, in, you know, what I try to make the people aware of is look put put everything aside all these very complicated things and also if you like Donald Trump or not put that aside for a second and think about where German Germany is today uh, 70 years seven, seven decades a little bit over seven decades after the Second World War where we, we live in speed peace stability we are luckily living in economic prosperity and um, that does not come out of the blue, blue sky. Um, the American friends have you know, protected us for decades. They have agreed, they have allowed us to prosper again. They entrusted us. Think about the Marshall Plan to rebuild Germany and, and, mm -hmm. and, and Europe. So these are things uh, all the way through the German reunification, fall of the Berlin Wall. Without uh, the United States of America, that would not have never have taken place. So, if you start from that a little bit, you know, history, not 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 waste time for transatlantic nostalgia, but you need this historic uh, look back uh, that helps to understand why it is important for us uh, to build on the transatlantic um, uh, fundament of shared values. That we, that we have. And one last point, if you think about that, 15 10 to 15% of Americans, American citizens today, say that, that in, in one way or another, they have German roots. Um, that is quite something. And these, build, these bridges are still there. We, 
we need to be aware of that. There's a strong mm -hmm. fundament that we share. All right, I think that's, well, as one of those 15%, uh, uh, I can only agree. Um, so the, you know, the United States has entered a very turbulent political period now, that's no secret. Um, we are getting into the, you know, most intense phase of our election uh, campaign. And I'm not going to ask you to take uh, to take sides. Um, that's not your your role, and uh, I won't put you in that position. But uh, you know, clearly, the United States' role internationally is is something that is on the minds of the American public. You know, whether you look at the book recently released by uh, former National Security Advisor John Bolton, uh, or if you look at comments made by the president publicly and other officials. You know, there is a certain amount of antagonism uh, toward, toward Germany and toward especially uh, German government positions. Um, and we're reminded of that uh, re frequently, even if we'd ever forgotten it. Um, so without asking you to, we'll get into some of the specific details of that, but how does the U.S. electoral season affect policymaking in Germany? How effective as an official or as a legislator? Does it mean does it mean you've got to change the way that you engage with the United States when we are in this uh, intense period? Uh, yes and no. Uh, um, and like like every four years, I mean, this is this is uh, you know there's some normality to that, and but but whenever there's an election campaign period, a presidential election year in the United States of America, that has an effect not only across the Atlantic, but globally, because everybody's interested who will be the next one in the Oval Office, because uh, the United States of America is the last remaining superpower on this planet, and th that has an effect uh, everywhere. So we cannot completely just be, sit back, relax, and just observe, and without it, well, one way or another, it's, it's okay. Of course, it has, it has an effect. Uh, we, are, we are observing very closely, um, not only Washington DC, but you know nationwide. I'm, I'm reading tons of reports and every day from 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 uh, many corners of the United States and a lot of not only webinars but telephone calls. You know, it's unfortunate we, that we cannot travel currently, but it, that is the the, the the reality we have to face currently. Yes, and um, you know, there's it, you you cannot completely um, cut some of the topics uh, on the transatlantic agenda off of the campaign time because one automatically wonders under what may be different perspective some of the topics will be discussed if somebody else would be sitting in the in the oval office you i mean you have seen in the uh, uh, you know the, the wto reform for example right. some of the cases that are currently pending there airbus and boeing for example um, then also uh, uh, trade connections. Uh, you certainly um, remind the, the, the glorious times of, of TTIP negotiations, the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership that never uh, came, came true uh, because of uh, more or less the Europeans and Germany. So basically, you know, formally tomorrow, formal negotiations across the Atlantic could start, but, uh, you know, I'm not naive. That is something that will remain on the agenda for quite some while. Um, so uh, also, you know, some things that, that we discuss, NATO, 2%, Nord Stream 2, we, we really we, we cannot deny that it is, has an effect if you're in a campaign, in an election year or not. 
So we think about how is this, how, how, how might this change or somebody else is sitting in the Oval Office than the current one, the president, and try to think about concepts of different communication and addressing these things. What I think would be a completely mistake to make, and you unfortunately hear this every now and then again, which, which really shocks me, is that, well, we take a you know, relaxed uh, approach and we, 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 we don't intensify the dialogue currently, we don't invest more time. Maybe we have different circumstances uh, on uh, November 4 then. Um, so uh, I think it is the responsibility for, for everybody in politics and in business um, to not waste any time. Although we are in summer recess, but I don't allow that to happen. We need to lead this intense uh, dialogue, structural economic dialogue, uh, on a, on a uh, close cooperation of security, mm -hmm. intelligence services, of a 5G is something that we should talk about more intensely. We here in Germany in 5G have not, have not yet made, made a, decision, a political decision. Uh, we are a little bit in delay, but there's so much to talk about, and we, we should do this now, be it in the election year, yes or no. It doesn't matter. It's our responsibility to do this now. And that is something that, that, of course, is affected by elections and campaigning in the United States, but, um, you know, life goes on, and we need to take up our responsibility. Right. Um, okay, and you've hit upon a few issues that I think are really uh, important to talk about. One um, but let me just start by observing, you mentioned the continuity um, in our relations, that there are issues that will be there regardless of who is in the White House. I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, I would just highlight for our listeners the, that AICGS just a couple of weeks ago published our own report in which we make recommendations to the next U.S. administration, regardless who wins, because we see uh, a great potential um, for, uh, for both parties uh, to elevate and prioritize the transatlantic relationship, and in particular, the partnership between the United States and Germany. But to come to some of the uh, particulars, um, you mentioned uh, trade and, uh, and economics, um, and you are a lawyer by training uh, as well as a politician. Uh, you know, how do you see the, the sanctions uh, issue? Um, uh, I think we'll get to Nord Stream too, but I want to start by asking about sanctions as an instrument, because there is, uh, you know, as people in Europe look at the situation of China, the Hong Kong security law, some people say that there should be, for example, a repeal of the extradition treaty um, with Hong Kong, uh, or to be suspended, that is, um, and others talk about using other economic measures. Um, do you see the view of that changing uh, in Germany? And what do you think uh, the, the Germany should be doing? And then we can get to the specific, you know, Iran and Nord Stream 2 issues. You know, uh, sanctions are a tool of international politics that, that, are, that make sense, can make sense from time to time. As you know, uh, European Union has imposed sanctions against Russia because of Ukraine. Um, so we use this as well, but we always, you know, um, uh, tie it specifically to some, um, you know, um, wrongdoing, what you think, in the example of Russia. So we don't have so too many, too many sanctions out there. I don't even think if Germany alone has sanctions imposed on anybody. If mm -hmm. we're doing this, as far as I am informed, we are doing this as the European Union. Um, first remark. Second remark would be, 
everything that is, uh, you know, has an extraterritorial effect, especially um, towards uh, allies, uh, friend, uh, countries that are, we are friends with, is something that we completely reject and we don't agree to that. And that brings me to the Vienna uh, uh, nuclear agreement with Iran, the so-called JCPOA, and Nord Stream 2. So because right. something's up the way there as well, and we might go into some more detail here. That is something we keep on saying to our American friends, um, Nord Stream 2, well, I mean, we, we, don't, we don't need you guys to take care about our own security interests. Uh, we know exactly what to do ourselves here. I mean, all the arguments from the U.S. side and our side, we, we exchange them. Um, and, um, but extraterritorial sanctions is not a tool that you should use really targeted at companies, not at states, and that's not the case, not at companies that are located throughout allied space. States. Uh, speaking of Nord Stream, it's not only German companies affected, but also Swiss, Austrian, French, Dutch companies are affected. And, um, you know, there is uh, really something that is of concern to us and that are creating frictions in the transatlantic relationship. And as, as you are aware, there are some uh, members of the U.S. Senate who have proposed uh, an even um, a stronger set of sanctions in the Nord Stream 2 connection um, that would expand the, the uh, European firms subjected to U.S. Uh, uh, sanction. Um, how do you think that would affect um, relations? That is something, some of the top priority talking points currently in the transatlantic dialogue. And again, something... I'm afraid that that is, uh, you know, doesn't make us happy. Um, I would rather, so much rather talk about, you know, building a more economic, uh, um, you know, relationship, uh, uh, talking about free trade and taking away tariff and non-tariff barriers to trade across the Atlantic. But unfortunately, we are more talking, and I think it's a waste of time to talk only about these sanctions. And you're absolutely right. And in, at the end of last year, PISA, P-E-S-A, uh, act was passed uh, by U.S. Congress already, uh, including some sanctions, extraterritorial sanctions against um, companies in the consortium as somebody who's financing uh, Nord Stream 2 or building Nord Stream 2. And now, um, as it seems, uh, Senators Ted Cruz, Gene Shaheen, Ron Johnson, Johnson, and others are in the lead of even expanding the scope of PISA. I think now they refer to it as PISCA or something of, of that kind, but it doesn't matter. So um, that would even include um, not only the types of business that I just referred to, but um, even uh, insurance companies or um, uh, anybody who does any kind of service related to Nord Stream 2. And there's even talks about that it is still so far that official, so um, uh, uh, government official, um, uh, um, uh, 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 what is it, uh, uh, um, authorities would be affected by this as well. And that would then not only include private businesses, but if that would be true for the first time, that would include uh, sanctions against allied states. 
um, as bad as the other things already would already be, um, uh, that is something that should uh, not be used against uh, uh, friends. Uh, again, as I mentioned earlier, we quite, you know, we understand ourselves where our secure energy security interests lie. Uh, I, I understand the critics, the critical arguments by the, by the American friends, but, you know, what I miss is some openness or preparedness from our American friends, and I, I know the senators personally quite well that I mentioned earlier, who are in the lead in, in mm -hmm. on the, you know, um, I sometimes miss the openness for our arguments. Uh, there's complete shutdown of like willingness to listen to us. Um, it's, it's, it's almost no, 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 pro, no, no, no uh, civil line on the horizon talking about these things. Of course, we are doing this. We're talking a lot about sending, sending joint letters signed by numerous members of the German Bundestag sent to our friends on the Hill. Um, so I don't know if that has any effect, but at least I hope they are reading this and listening to that. And last remark in that regard, Nord Stream 2 um, and Pisca, I think it is uh, more likely than not that Congress will pass this bill, but uh, maybe we can um, be successful from our side to make a little bit, some, some tiny changes that it is not really completely going out of uh, out of, uh, out of mm -hmm. scope but I, that I, is a really um, critical uh, topic currently on the transatlantic agenda and it's not a good one uh, you know I you there are two two important uh, points you've made there and I mean one one is the question about um, proportionality I mean you know, it's no secret that people in the United States in both parties are critical of Nord Stream 2. I think that's been obvious since the project was announced and it's becoming more uh, pronounced uh, now. Um, but the question is, how important is this relative to the other issues that are on the German-American agenda? Is this something that uh, merits uh, the kind of attention it's being given? Um, I would uh, I would offer that uh, you know there are other things people could uh, people could spend their time on productively, and that gets to the question of you know it's a bandwidth question. Uh, if if the United States and Germany are spending their time arguing about Nord Stream two, that is time that is not being spent uh, on something that could be much more uh, beneficial to to both uh, to both countries. That that brings me to um, the the topic you mentioned earlier in our conversation, which is five G. Uh, the U.S. National Security Advisor, Robert O'Brien, is in Europe uh, today and, according to press reports, is having meetings with uh, not only with French but also with German and British uh, counterparts uh, in the next couple of days. Uh, so, um, you know, one of the issues that is important uh, is the future of our digital infrastructure, how, how the transatlantic community structures its, uh, its own um, economic and information systems. So do you see a, uh, and, and as you mentioned, the German Bundestag is uh, supposed to pass legislation um, uh, on this uh, that would, that would uh, govern uh, the participation of, of foreign companies uh, in building that system, but that hasn't happened yet. Is there something specific holding that up or how do you see the 5G issue moving ahead? Uh, um, it is delayed. Um, you know, if we go back like, at least half a year or so, or was it already last year? Um, we in the parliament uh, were a little bit <laughs> angry, um, at least some of us, a little group, 
which grew larger and larger, um, headed by Foreign Relations Committee Chairman Norbert Röttgen. Yes. And I was one, I'm one a member of this informal group because we detected, so we learned about plans by the German government. I mean, we are also from the CDU, from the, from the political party where, where, where uh, Chancellor Angela Merkel is, uh, has been a long time chairwoman, not from, but so she's our chancellor, but we detected that something's going on with regard, the parliament is not involved as it should be in these, uh, in this 5D critical infrastructure field, which we think is so decisive for shaping uh, our future um, technologically, uh, you know, with regard to, to, to businesses in Germany and with regard to data protection and so on. So we thought that we as parliamentarians should have uh, much, much more a say in this discussion and how this is shaped and how the decision-making is going on and only at the very, very end of this, of this process where government is giving something already, some draft bill to the parliament and we can all, you know, only have a little time to discuss about that and say yes or no. So at an early stage of time, we wanted to be involved and we engaged and, you know, um, that, that caused some of the delay. So as I said in my introductory remarks, we have not yet made a political decision on that. As I hear now, uh, um, shortly after the summer recess, that will be presented to Parliament, um, but that would require the government, the German federal government, uh, to come up with a compromise because even within the German government, there is no consent Mm -hmm. uh, on how we should shape that. Should we exclude Chinese companies um, per se, or should we write down a list of criteria that would maybe de facto, only de facto exclude somebody? Um, and should there be only a declaration by potential 5G uh, suppliers like Huawei or ZTE saying, you know, we are trustworthy, or should there be rather an upfront examination, which I would prefer? Um, so that has not been consented within the government yet. The Federal Foreign Office takes a different view than the Chancellery and the Ministry for the Interior Affairs also. So I hope they are using the time over the summer to agree on something because it's critical that Germany makes a political decision. I have uh, led tons of discussions with U.S. friends uh, who are reaching out to us, and I'm not referring to then U.S. Ambassador to Germany, Rick Rennell, who you know, first came up and said, you know, if you're doing, if you're allowing Huawei or other Chinese companies to be a main supplier for 5G technology in Germany, we might think uh, to, um, you know, to, to uh, refrain from further uh, cooperation uh, of our intelligence services. I'm referring to other colleagues on the Hill, but also in the administration say, well, Germany, uh, basically, uh, we could be on one side. And that brings me to a question of, of uh, uh, or, you know, wouldn't that be a super good um, field, 5G, 6G for that matter, and other technology, decisive technology issues, uh, where we could and should work much more intensely together for the future uh, to secure our interests for our citizens, right. because that is one of the responsibilities that we have. 
So um, I would uh, highlight we've got we've got a chapter on that in our AICGS election uh, recommendations report. Um, but let me come let me uh, challenge you a little bit on that, uh, Peter, because isn't this really a CD an internal CDU problem? Um, I mean, the SPD has uh, written a paper um, on uh, on the issue. They seem to be more or less on uh, on a unified line, um, but there seem to be some fairly well known uh, or public disagreements um, between the chancellery, the interior ministry, the economics ministry, compared to those people in parliament that you, uh, that you described, uh, led by Norbert Rutgen, but with uh, significant uh, other uh, CDU figures. Uh, is, is this really a CDU issue to resolve, or is it more complicated than that? Now, I hope not that this is only a CDU issue, because um, I think everybody needs to understand that that is such a decisive decision to be made for the future of the security of our prosperity here. Um, you know, uh, many decisions, political decisions and developments uh, uh, that, you know, w w that are based on this decision that we're about to make, um, you know, will we'll relate back to that. So it's now that we take ownership uh, or claim ownership of this issue. Yes, uh, you know, as, as you said, there's a lot of CDU politicians um, discussing this, and I think it's actually quite good that we do this also in public, but also we sat several times together uh, in, in little small circles with the Chancellor. Um, she, she, she took her time, and she's, she's very good, and we discussed all this. We could not yet convince her. It seems to be more on the CDU side, but hey, look, I mean, we have a coalition, and mm -hmm. that is through politics. We need to find majorities, and I think it's worthwhile we educate during the process ourselves, the government, and to to, to make everybody more sensible to this, to the uh, sensitive to, the, to this issue, and create awareness. You see, from time to time, uh, um, this 5G uh, process discussed in major German newspapers or in, in, in other interviews, or so it creates an awareness that people really think twice even those who you know are happy to buy their huawei smartphones all the time or who start implementing 5g technology um in their businesses and you know, the companies is that well wait a minute well i haven't thought about that so much there's there, there's something to it. so that this this discussion if, if you may within the cdu has led to much more awareness and a sensitivity to this issue, which I think is something that is uh, not a bad thing. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, now, Peter, your responsibilities go beyond government-to-government -government, uh, relations. They include sort of uh, social and cultural um, relations as well. So I want to switch to a different uh, topic, and that has to do with uh, the educational connections um, and the kind of person-to-person -person connections. You know, of course, during the pandemic, there has been a uh, there have been restrictions on both sides. Uh, the United States uh, for people traveling from the Schengen uh, space, uh, also Europe, uh, people traveling from the United States uh, are also restricted. Um, is you know what are the United States and Germany doing it, it, as far as you as far as you are able to tell us uh, to address this issue? Is this a diplomatic issue in some way? Or is this purely a public health um, uh, issue uh, at this stage? Yeah, I mean, the, the, this issue with the, especially with the student visa, F1, M1, has come up only recently over the past three months more intensely. Um, it, I, I know that both um, 
foreign ministers, so Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and Heiko Maas, have uh, only recently, I think three, four days ago, discussed this issue on the, on the phone in a telephone call they had. I don't know what came out of this, but at least they addressed that. Mm-hmm. Um, on the agenda, but, but, so- that was, that was the student issue specifically. Exactly. But that okay. is very top level. Um, so we address that. Uh, we, of course, understand completely that every state, and as we are doing over here, and certainly also the USA, has, has to make uh, its own decision how they, uh, you know, manage the crisis. And, you know, there are some steps that are, that are not popular, but of course, also, we, you know, it, it hits especially this, the, the, the youngsters, which are so important, which are already located in the United States of America doing their online right. sessions. And maybe, but there's only, you know, I, I, maybe I shouldn't say that, but it's also an economic factor, of course. Uh, foreign students contribute a lot with their tuitions. They usually pay double the price. And uh, so that might also, and now I'm speaking as a parliamentarian, so not as a government official, that might also um, be a, a means um, to open up the schools and to, you know, to use this a little bit as a pressure to mm-hmm. that, that universities open up schools and that they keep the foreign students there and that these foreign students make pressure on their, on their U.S. Uh, 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 colleges and so on. I don't know exactly about that. I think, you know, I have some, some suspicion there in that regard. But of course, as I said earlier, it's a sovereign decision. We, we're addressing this. It, it's, it's, it's not good, uh, obviously, for, for uh, cultural relations. Uh, whereas I think there's nothing better than bringing young people together. Look, I, I did my uh, law school, master of laws degree at, a, at UVA Law School uh, many years ago. Uh, I enjoyed this very much when I was still young. And um, I, I, my, my son just spent a high school year uh, in, in the United States uh, and just returned. So bringing young people together is something that's we, that is really extremely needed, um, especially in times where the United States are not as popular anymore as, as they were during the 70s and 80s when I grew up. So it is an issue that we need to address when we're doing this. I hope that we lead this dialogue a little bit further and that we, come to, that we can find a solution there. But I'm not overly optimistic that we're all there yet. But we're working, certainly working on that. We're taking it really seriously these these issues. Mm-hmm. Well, as you know, there, there's an estimate that about nine thousand, a little over nine thousand German students uh, are in the United States now. Of course, the the new restrictions apply only to on, those institutions that have gone to an online uh, only model. So not all of those nine thousand would be affected, but certainly um, important. For us and uh, certain uh, AICGS, we are a part of Johns Hopkins University, and our university is one of those that has filed suit to halt the implementation of this regulation. So um, uh, this will clearly be uh, a high priority issue, uh, even in the coming days and uh, and then weeks. Um, as yeah, we- you can trust. I mean, Jeff, you can really trust um, on, on us. Uh, as I said earlier, it is really in high level on the secretary and minister level. They have addressed that personally, so they are working on some way to find a solution. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, uh, you know, we have gone from the defense relationship between Germany and the United States to the economic uh, and uh, and the 
economic diplomacy uh, aspect, including sanctions. We've talked about China and 5G. Uh, and we've talked about the, the broader relations between Americans and Germans, uh, whether they are students or people who travel between the two countries. I think it's a reflection of how broad and, uh, and deep this relationship is. And I think we are, uh, we are so fortunate to have uh, you, Peter, as, uh, as one of the advocates and experts on that uh, relationship on the German side. So uh, let me thank you for spending time with us today and thank you for uh, all of the energy and commitment you put into the German-American partnership. Jeff, I, I, I cannot thank you uh, enough for the work you are doing and the AICGS at Johns Hopkins is extremely important. Um, I mean, you're concentra concentrating in your, in your work uh, specifically on U.S.-German relations. That is very unique and it is needed. And uh, it is needed from our side and certainly also from the U.S. side. So uh, you, you really make a difference. You're, you're important the work you're doing. And I'm not just saying this because I'm not on an AI <laughs> podcast. I really mean it. Yes, that is something I cannot emphasize enough. I, so thank you very much for everything you're doing with your team. Well, it's always a pleasure talking to you, Peter. Um, not only when you have those kind of kind words for us, but that's, uh, that's uh, very nice to hear. So thank you for, uh, for everything you're doing. And we look forward to keeping in touch. And, uh, and we will also look forward to having all of our listeners uh, and viewers with us on the next episode of The Zeitgeist. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to The Zeitgeist a podcast produced by the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies at Johns Hopkins University. Send us your feedback by email to info at AICGS.org or catch us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at AICGS. Don't forget to check out AICGS.org for more information from today's episode. Auf Wiederhören!